And uh, it's great to be here with you guys in Shoreline. Uh, really, really honored to be here. And I'm glad that, that uh, Geo got a chance to go to, do we have the clicker? Uh, Geo got a chance, I'm not gonna use this. It's got way too much feedback, is that okay? I can yell. So, all right, we'll just do this instead. Okay, so anyways, can you guys hear me? Yeah. I feel much better that way. All right, so uh, I'm super excited to be here. My wife and I, uh, of course, are, are thrilled to be here with you guys. And, uh, okay, I don't know what that's about. But um, anyways, we're, we're thrilled to be here. And the reason why we're here, truth be told, is because we wanted to give Gio a chance to go to, to see me. He hasn't had a chance to preach there. So we thought, hey, why don't we just do a, a pulpit switch so you can go there and speak to the church up there. So they're really thrilled to have him with them up there. And I'm really thrilled. My wife and I are really thrilled to be here with you. So that's why we're here. Now, thank you for that. Now, I am doing a series called Jesus, uh, hashtag Jesus, worth following. And I've been doing this since the beginning of the year in Simi Valley. And I know last Sunday we were at Moore Park Country Club and you guys heard me uh, do one, another installment of the series. And at that time, I'm in, I was in chapter five because that's where we're at in Simi Valley. But when I come here, I like to back up because I like to keep you guys up to speed or get you kind of up to date with what's happened before all that. So we're going to back up now and do the fourth lesson I did in this series. I think I've done three here already. And uh, this is all the way back in Mark chapter one. So we're gonna go backwards a little bit and fill in some of the backstory. So when you have a chance, turn in your Bible over to Mark chapter one, we're gonna read verses 21 to 28. Now before I do that, go ahead and turn there. But before I do that, I do wanna tell you a story about a cab driver. So there was a cab driver, first day on the job. He gets in his cab and he's driving down the street and he sees a fare and he pulls over and the guy gets in the car. It's his very first fare, first day on the job. The guy gets in and says, hey, uh, here's where I want to go. Gives him the directions. Great. They take off. They're driving. A few minutes into the drive, the, cab, uh, the, 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 the fare in the back seat realizes that he gave the cab driver the wrong address. So he reaches up and he taps the cabbie on the shoulder to tell him the, 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 the correct address. But when he taps the cabbie in the shoulder, as soon as he touches him, the cab driver freaks out. He screams and loses complete control of the car. They do a complete spin down the middle of the road. They go off the side of the road, up a curb, through a parking lot, and they stop just in front of a, 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 front, a, a storefront window in a, in, a, in a strip mall. And you know, after something like that happens, there's that pregnant pause, right? There's that long silence. And they're, they're in the car, and they realize nobody got hurt, nothing got broken, everybody's okay. And then the cab driver turns around to the guy in the back seat and he goes, don't you ever, ever do that again. Never touch me from behind when I'm driving. What do you think you were doing? And the guy in the, the fair, I mean, he's still recovering from the whole accident. And he looks at the cab driver, he gets mad and he goes, how dare you talk to me like that? Don't you talk to me like that? I was just trying to tell you the new address. I gave you the wrong address the first time. I can't believe you're yelling at me after all that. And then it's silent again. And there's this long pause. And then the cab driver finally kind of humbles out and he relaxes and he says, listen, you're right. I am so sorry. So sorry that I freaked out. Sorry that I yelled at you. It was totally my fault. And the, and the guy goes, yes, it is. It's totally in front of me. Why would you do something like that? And why would you freak out like that? And the cab driver goes, look, it's my first day on the job. You're the very first fare I've ever had. For the past 25 years, I've been driving a funeral van. <laughs> Mark chapter 1, verse 21, 
They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Now Mark tells us uh, in, this, in, the, in, this, in this encounter that they went into Capernaum. And the, the day is Jesus and, and his earliest disciples. It was a handful of people, uh, the men that he called to be his close disciples. And, and uh, they went into the city of Capernaum. And if you look on our map, the city of Capernaum is at the top, up in the province of Galilee. And there's the Sea of Galilee. Thanks, Lynn, for that cool little PowerPoint about the Sea of Galilee. But there it is, and there's Capernaum right there at the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it was, a home, it was home to uh, fishermen, to farmers, to stonemasons, and many other people. It was a bustling little city. It also housed a Roman garrison. There was actually a Roman centurion stationed in Capernaum, and he had a whole garrison of soldiers. There were custom officers, there were other royal officials, and they were all there because Capernaum sat on this road. This white line on this map that we've got on the screen here represents what's called the Via Maris. That road connected the east to the west. It was a very important road in ancient times. Lots of commerce and business and things were conducted, traveling uh, along that road occurred, and, and cities like Capernaum and Tiberias that were on that road became very important cities. And so the Romans established a garrison there to protect the peace and to keep the roads open. It was also a great place to collect taxes. And so in, in Jesus' day, the city of Capernaum was, was an important city. Now, it wasn't important like, like Rome. It was a small city. It wasn't important like Athens. It wasn't necessarily this hub of culture. So in our day and age, it wasn't really like LA or San Francisco. It wasn't important like that. But, but you know, it was kind of important. It was important kind of like Oxnard. I want you to think Oxnard when you think of Capernaum. Right there on the sea, there's a, there's a military base there. There's some tax collectors. There's farmers. There are other people that work there, right? Capernaum is kind of like the Oxnard of our day and age. An important city, but not, not L.A., not San Francisco, but not, you know, nonetheless an important city. It also became known as Jesus' city. And, and it, became called, it, it was called Jesus' city because Jesus made Capernaum his home. That's actually where he lived when he, when he, when he uh, uh, was pub in the public ministry. That's where he spent almost two-thirds or about two-thirds of his time when he went public as a rabbi. Now, the question is, why would Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, why would God send him to Capernaum? Why would he go there to start his ministry? Why not in Jerusalem, the hub of the Jewish faith? Or why not in Rome, the center of the world at the time? Why Capernaum? I mean, why Oxnard, for crying out loud? Why would Jesus go there? <laughs> the beach. There were a couple of reasons. The beach was one of them. One of them, it was very pragmatic. Most of Jesus' disciples, in fact, all of his early disciples, 
all but one actually lived or worked near Capernaum. So it was a logical place. That's where they were from. It was their, it was their, old, it was their hometown. It was their stomping grounds. It was also a very practical place. Capernaum was a good training ground for ministry. It was a fairly Hellenized area. When I say Hellenized, I mean it's, they spoke Greek. There was a common language, Greek. And the culture, the Greek culture was kind of spread throughout the area. So even though it was Jewish in the sense that there were several, uh, there was a, a pretty sizable Jewish community in Galilee, it was also Greek at the same time. It was Hellenized. And there were also Gentiles, meaning non-Jews, in the area. So in that way, it was kind of cosmopolitan. And because it was a thoroughfare, there were people from all different walks of life coming in and out of Capernaum. So it was a great training ground for ministry. There was a variety of people. There was also a lot of potential in Galilee, in Capernaum, because Capernaum was not Jerusalem. It was not down in Judea, in the, 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 the region of Judea. By the way, the word Judea means Jew. So Judea was where the Jews were, where Jerusalem was. I'm not being derogatory. That was just, it was very Jewish down there. And there wasn't a lot of open-mindedness. It was very traditional. It was very customary. They had their way of doing things. And a new teacher, a new rabbi on the scene with some new ideas would not go over well. They'd get very hostile very quick. If you know the story of Jesus, he only spent maybe a few months in Jerusalem before they killed him. I mean, that's all he had down there. So Capernaum was a great place because people were open-minded. There was a lot of potential up there for new ideas and new experiences and new, new ideas about God and, and teachings about God. But there's another reason that's even more powerful than all those reasons. There was a purpose that Jesus came to, uh, to, to, to Galilee and specifically made Capernaum his hometown. I want you to read this prophecy. I'm going to put it on the screen. It took place 700, it was written 720, 750 years before the light, Jesus was even born. It was, it was given by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That's actually Galilee. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea. That phrase, the way of the sea. In Latin, that means via maris. That's the name of the road that went right through Capernaum. It was a prophecy. Yeah, it was PCH. It was a prophecy. that There was a prophetic reason for Jesus to be in Capernaum. God had a purpose to put Jesus there. Now you could say, well, geez, Jesus knew the prophecy. Maybe he went there. Maybe he's a, you know, he just made it all up. He read that prophecy, so he went there. Yeah, but he couldn't control where he was born or when he was born. I mean, there's so many things that, that could factor in here. The fact of the matter is this prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus when he moved into Galilee, lived in Capernaum, and spent two and a half years there preaching and teaching and honoring, blessing the land everywhere he went along the Via Maris, the way of the sea. Jesus was fulfilling God's purpose, God's plan to honor God in that land. Why do you live where you live? It's probably pragmatic. Your job might be there. It's probably very practical. It's, you can afford a house. There might even be some great potential. There's good schools. 
I'm sure those are all reasons, and they're all valid reasons for why we live where we live. But the question is, is do you live where you live believing that God has a purpose for you living there? Do you realize that God has a purpose for every one of us, no matter where we live, to be where we are? We don't need to have that the grass is green or somewhere else because the grass is green right here. I live in the valley. It's brown there. (laughs) But it's green in the sense that God put me there to be there. And I have purpose there. There's potential there. There's a reason for me to be there beyond practical and pragmatic. God has a plan for me in the neighborhood I live in. And God has a plan for you in the neighborhood that you live in, in the community that you live in. Do you think of yourself as the fulfillment of God's plan to your community? Now that's different than saying I'm God's gift. Don't think that. But it is important. I think it is valid to say that God God has put us there for a reason. And when you live that way, when you have that in the forefront of your mind, it's not just because it's a nice neighborhood or the schools are good or it's where I could afford or the weather's great. All those reasons melt away. I'm here because God wants me to do something special in this part of the world. Do you live that way? Do you think of yourself in that light? When you walk through Ventura or Oxnard or wherever it is you live, Camarillo, well, we face it, people in Camarillo always think that, but everywhere else, right? Do you think that God has a plan for your life? And that where you go and where you walk, he wants to use you to honor and bless the people around you. I believe he does. I believe that's why we're here today. It's why God has put us in the same environment. So God always has a purpose. Now let's look at uh, the second part of verse 21. Don't worry, I'm not going to do each verse halfway. We'll be here all day. So we'll we'll move quick. But the second thing he says, and Mark tells us, is that Jesus went into the synagogue in Capernaum and he began to teach. I want you to look at the picture on the screen. This is actually an aerial footage of downtown ancient Capernaum. It's in ruins, but this is the real city. This, This did exist. And, and it, there it is, and Jesus did live there, and he did spend time there, and that is the footprint of the town, the, the city center. And I want you to notice right about the middle, you'll see kind of a white rectangular building. That is the synagogue that Jesus and his disciples went into. Now, let's talk about synagogues for a minute. Synagogue is a, is a special word. It's a lot like the word church. It means a gathering or assembly. And uh, it could refer to either the building or the group of people. Synagogues probably came about sometime, I don't know, in the 500, 600 BC era, somewhere in that range. The Jews had a nation, the nation of Israel, and they were, they were happy about their nation, but they had gotten conquered by the Babylonians, and then they had gotten dispersed. And in those days, when, a, when an empire conquered another empire, they just took everybody and moved them. So you, you didn't get to choose. You know, you just got sent somewhere else. And maybe a few people stayed home and kept the ground from going fallow. But other than that, everybody else got scattered. Some got taken to the capital. Some got dispersed all over the place. And, and they call that the, the diaspora, it's a fancy word. But it means the scattering, the spreading out of the Jewish people all over the known world, or at least the Middle East at that time. 
And you could imagine if you were Jewish and now you were living among strangers and people with foreign gods and foreign beliefs and everything was radically different, that you would, you would see that there's strength in numbers, that you'd want to kind of gather together. And that's what happened. These little pockets of Jews would, would find each other and they would create these little communities wherever they lived because there was strength in those numbers. And those became the, that became the start of the synagogue. They were local communities where, where, where Jews of like-minded people could come together and they could study the scriptures, they could pray, they could spend time in prayer. They, they, it was an important time to meet and strengthen and take care of each other and minister to one another. They actually couldn't do any worship or sacrificing because God had commanded that only that could be done at the temple in Jerusalem, but they could do everything else. And that is actually probably what we can tell from history, the origin of the synagogue. And over time, they eventually were able to build buildings where they could meet and have a place of their own. By the time of Jesus, synagogues were established throughout the Roman Empire. In Jerusalem alone, there was almost 400 different synagogues in the city. So the Jews were very effective at creating these little pockets, these little uh, communities. Now, synagogue, inside the synagogue, if they had a building, there would be a chest. It was a, basically an open hall, and there would be a chest where they would keep the scrolls. It would be protected, locked up, and, there, and, and uh, that's where the scrolls would be kept. There was a stage for someone to stand on and be able to speak or address an audience. There was desks. There were chairs. There was a synagogue ruler. On Sunday, we talked about one of them, Jarius, who was the synagogue ruler probably of the synagogue in Capernaum. And the synagogue ruler's job was to take care of the facility, supervise the worship. He maintained order. He invited in guest speakers. As I said last Sunday, a very good chance Jarius was the guy that invited Jesus to come and preach in the synagogue in Capernaum in his first public sermon ever given as a rabbi. And many other things. That's what the synagogue ruler would do. Also, the synagogues allowed men and women to come and be together in, in, in service at the synagogue. Thank you. Uh, at prayer or singing or whatever it is, scripture reading. They also allowed Gentiles to participate. Their services included things like prayer, scripture reading, a sermon, a homily, a fellowship, and some fellowship. The point is, why I'm drilling down on the word synagogue here, the point I want to get across to you is that synagogues had become synonymous with Jewish life and faith. They were essential. You could not separate the Jew from the synagogue, nor could you separate the synagogue from the Jew. Where there was no synagogue, there was no Jewish life and faith. Where there was no Jewish life and faith, there was no synagogue. You know, there's a lot of parallels between the synagogue and what we call church. Both can refer to a building or a group of people. Churches are communities where people come together that have similar like beliefs and they gather for purposes of prayer and scripture reading and encouragement. As Christians, we come together and we actually can worship because we don't, we don't have to worship at the temple alone. That's maybe one difference that we have between the Jews and we don't do the sacrifices like the Jews did. So we can come together for worship and prayer and scripture reading. But, but in so many ways, there's so many parallels between the synagogue and what that did for the Jewish community for hundreds of years from, from the time of the Babylonian ex exile, somewhere around 600 BC, all the way until Jesus' day. The church has done a lot of the same things for Christians from the time of Jesus to today. After Jesus was, was crucified, his disciples were scattered and they eventually made more disciples, and they eventually came together in communities. 
and they created little churches and eventually over hundreds of years, those, they were able to build buildings. And in those buildings and in those communities, they were able to worship God, have prayer, scripture reading, singing, all the same things that happened in the synagogue. And the point I want you to hear that's crucial is just like the synagogue was essential to the Jewish faith and life, the church is essential to the Christian faith and life. Where there's no church, there's very few or no Christians. And where there are no Christians, there's no church. You can't separate the two. Well, wait a second. I don't believe in organized religion. I want to step on your foot right now when you say that. That is not what the Bible teaches. Absolutely there's organization to religion. It is not anarchist, which is funny because even anarchists have organization, which always cracks me up. They have meetings. And I've always wondered, what do they do in their meetings? Of course there's organization to religion. It wouldn't exist without it. Of course there's organization to Christianity. You can't have it without it. Or what about the people you run into that say this? Well, I don't go to church because this is my, this is my church. I usually meet those guys down by the beach yeah. or hiking on some trail somewhere. This is my church. No, no. Yes, it's God's creation. Yes, it's a great place to worship, but no. That's not true. I want to twist your nose now because you don't understand the Bible. You don't understand church history or the, or the history of people of faith for thousands of years. We have to be together. We have to form communities. We have to come together for strengthening, encouragement, prayer, scripture reading, singing, and all that goes along with it. Without the church, there's no Christianity. Now, I've tried in my life at different times to, to, to do that. I've tried to be the Christian without the church. And I have failed every time. Maybe some of you have had the same experience. It's just not possible. You might be better than me, but at the end of the day, no one's above being a part of a community. And so I say all this to say, guys, we desperately need each other. We desperately need to build the community together. We desperately need to work together and be a part of each other's lives and make those connections and, and have those relationships because without those, there is no Christianity. Now, it's not only about the fellowship. It's also about the prayer, the scripture reading, the, 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 the communing together, all of it, the worship, all of it. We've got to do all that. We're not just a social club. We're, we're, we're a church. But I really want you to think about your life right now for a minute and ask yourself, how invested are you at this point in time in your community, in your church? How important is it to you? Do you really feel, do you really think that you don't need it, that you, you, know, you can keep it at arm's bay, that you can just attend? No, that's not the teaching in Scripture. That's not the historical precedent we discover in Scripture. The church is essential to our life, to our faith, and we are essential to the church. We need each other to be faithful. Amen. We'll pick it up here. Verse 22. I promise I'm not going to go through every verse. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them 
as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Now, this picture is actually a close-up of the other picture. And it's hard to see because, you know, we have a lot of light here. But you'll notice that the top half of the, of the ruins of the synagogue, they tend to be a, a lighter color. But down there at the very bottom, there's a foundation now. It's actually very dark stone. It's basalt. Okay, so the, the lighter stone has been dated to around 4 or 5 A.D., four or 500 years after Jesus lived. But the darker stone, the actual foundation, has been dated to the first century, to the time of Christ. So what we're seeing here is actually the foundation that existed in Jesus' day. The top part was built later. It was probably rebuilt a, a number of different times. But the actual foundation still exists from the time of Jesus. He actually did go into that building and actually teach his first public sermon. Now, what was cool about this synagogue in Capernaum is that it was actually not built by the Jews. It was built by a Roman centurion. Luke tells us that in Luke 7. Apparently, the, the community there in Capernaum had made nice with the Romans, which was a smart thing to do at that time. And the centurion, maybe to keep the peace, maybe as a thank you, he ordered the construction of their synagogue and had it built for them. And so for at least a time there in, in, in Capernaum, they must have had a good dynamic with the Romans in the city. But I want to focus on here the fact that Jesus went in there and taught. Do you realize that what, what Mark is telling us is the actual account of Jesus' very first public message? It was his first time going public and teaching, and it was there in the, in the synagogue in Capernaum. Now Mark, interestingly enough, does not tell us what Jesus said. It doesn't record it here, but what he does tell us is the effect it had on everyone in the room. Imagine... You know, living your life out. I mean, I heard Jesus' first sermon. I was there. You know, I know our culture right now is into that, like reliving the moment, right? We got we to gotta go back and everybody's got, oh, I was there. I saw Wayne Gretzky. Woo, you know, I saw some great athlete. Imagine seeing Jesus' first sermon. I mean, that trumps everything else. That's way better than, you know, Michael Jordan's whatever, 100th point or, you know, whatever. Way better. So here we are. We're in the synagogue. And we don't know what he said, but what we do know, according to Mark, is the effect. And the effect was that people were amazed because he taught them as one who had authority. Now, this stands out in Mark's account. What is the reason? Why did that make a mark on the people? That phrase, had authority. Well, because it was different than what they were used to. They were used to how the teachers of the law and other people would teach, who apparently did not teach with authority. Now, the word authority in Greek is exousia, and it means the power to act or to do as one pleases. Now, the teachers of the law, when they taught the scriptures, they did not have the authority to interpret the scriptures. What they would do is they would say, well, here's what rabbi so-and-so thinks, and here's what rabbi so-and-so thought about that, and rabbi before him thought this. And so the way the teachers of the law and the other people, the scribes, whatever, the way they taught scripture was very uh, removed from the, the scripture. They were more interested in what was the common or the accepted or the traditional view that had been handed down through generations to them. They were more worried about their tradition and not violating anything that was acceptable and customary. And so because of that, they did not teach with a whole lot of authority. Jesus taught as if he wrote it. And that was amazing to the people in the room. 
They did not expect that from Jesus. That was something completely different. His way of teaching was to teach as if he knew and he alone knew what the passage meant. And he did not rely on what Rabbi so-and-so said before him. He was not concerned about what the customary or the traditional view of any passage was. He told it like it is, as he understood it, because he was the author of it from the beginning. And this had an effect on the audience. They were amazed. When you and I take the time to teach God's word, whether it's me in a sermon, it's you in a a Bible study, it's you in a, a group setting, sharing a passage, having a devotional with your family, reading it on your own personally, when you do that, please make sure that you seek out the correct interpretation, that you go back to what the Bible, uh, that you discover what the Bible meant you to discover, what was meant for you to understand. When we teach that way, when we understand God's word that way, we're teaching in the same kind of authority that Jesus had. Now, it's not our authority, but it's his authority. We're teaching the Bible according to his authority whenever we teach what he said it meant. So we never go wrong when we rely on the interpretation that Jesus gave us about Scripture because he's the author and he can tell us what it means. And we never go wrong when we rely on what the Bible meant, uh, what the Bible says and we avoid traditional interpretations or what is customarily taught. We go back to what the Scriptures say. And when we do that, we, we can teach with authority. I have a story. This is a true story. There's a, a church near my house, and my family had gone there off and on at different times. I didn't go. But they had a, a minister there, and my uh, brother and sister, uh, who are now baptized, but back then they weren't, they went, and they went to the new Christians class at this church. And they had come out to our fe- fellowship, and they knew what we believed about things like baptism. And they had a little discussion in the new Christians class about baptism. And here's what the minister actually said. He said, well, because they asked him, Why, you know, what's your teaching on baptism? This is what we've learned over here. This is what the Bible seems to say. You know, what is your teaching? He said, well, they, they have a traditional teaching. They, they baptize infants and all that kind of stuff. And the, the, the minister actually said to them, well, you know, truth be told, if I, if I you know, taught what I really think, they probably are right. They probably should be baptizing adults. We probably shouldn't be baptizing children. The minister said that that we probably shouldn't teach this, it's probably not accurate, but it's what this church believes, it's the tradition, and so that's what I am obligated to teach. That was the minister, the guy you're supposed to trust to tell you what God's word says, to help you understand God's word in a greater way. He's openly admitting that he's teaching false doctrine because that was just what was accepted by the church that he was now currently working for, so that's what he taught. And, and there are hundreds of others, guys. The Christian church is riddled, or the, the Christian world, I should say, is riddled with false teachers. Teachers who teach whatever is commonly accepted or whatever is popular. And, and they speak to the crowd and they don't actually go back to what, what Jesus taught or what the scriptures inten- originally were uh, intended to mean. And they dismiss things like creation and miracles and prophecies and even morality because they're married to their traditions or they're married to the the, the societal norms or beliefs that occur in in our culture. And they don't have the courage to stand up and teach like Jesus taught. They don't have the courage to go back to what the the original text says and understand it in its context and teach it appropriately and rely on how Jesus 
uh, or, or look at Jesus' teaching and depend on those. You know, personally, one of the most important things to me whenever I preach, whenever I teach, is to know the passage. I spend a lot of time on every passage. I dig. I want to understand it. I want to know what it meant at the time that it was said, how, it, how they understood it, so I can properly understand what it means to me today. I beg you to do the same. It's really important that we have correct interpretation of Scripture. Why? Why does it matter? Here's the point, and if you hear no other point today, get this one. God's Word changes people. Not your advice. And not my advice. And not my opinion. And not your opinion. And not what Tony Robbins says. And not what some politician says. And not what anybody else says. God's Word alone has the power to change people. And we do a disservice to them, to ourselves, and to God's honor when we try to teach anything other than God's word. And I sad to say, it's in our, it's in our, it's in our community. It happens. I get it. We're people. We're flawed. We get together. We seek advice from each other. And the next thing you know, if we spend more than 45 minutes together, we start making stuff up. <laughs> my background's in counseling. I, I have a, uh, my master's in counseling. And one of the rules of counseling is never go more than 45 minutes. And there's a reason, because after about 45 minutes, there's a point of diminishing returns. You start making stuff up. Wow. The conversation degrades rapidly. Now, I'd love to see that applied to our counseling times with each other. Let's keep it to a, a, a concise frame of time. Let's not it ramble on for hours, because if it goes on past midnight, we're going to start making stuff up. And I got to tell you, I've heard some crazy ideas in this congregation. People have given me advice that I look back on, I go, that was crazy. <laughs> I've given people advice that I look back on, I'm embarrassed. I had to go back and apologize. I'm so sorry. I was talking to a couple last, uh, couple nights ago, and they, they told me about a couple that gave them advice, and I was like, please don't ever listen to that advice. <laughs> we got to get away from relying on our thoughts, our beliefs, you know, what we think is right and wrong, and we got to go back to what Jesus taught, to what the scriptures taught, because that's what actually does the changing. And it's true in our parenting, it's true in our connection with each other, and it's true with the people in the world around us. It's God's word that changes people. It's what amazes people, not me and you. And it's to his glory, not to ours. So what happens after, see, I told you I wouldn't go through everything. Between 21 and 26, basically what happens is Jesus is teaching, and then this guy in the middle of the synagogue who's possessed starts screaming out at him. And, uh, you know, says, what are you going to do with us? And all this, and this big commotion breaks out, and Jesus says, be quiet. And he casts the demon out of him. You know, it's interesting. I, the demon actually goes, what do you want with us? Wouldn't it be great if we asked that question more often? I mean, geez, what do you want from us, Jesus? If we would just have that heart and search for it, we might be better off. Now, of course, the demon didn't have that heart, but he said the right words. What do you want with us? Jesus said, get out of here. Go away. So they left. The guy shook violently. Everybody freaked out. And then the spirit left. And in verse 27, it says, the people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching? By the way, the teaching not the advice, the teaching, and with authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. 
News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. You know, in, in this phrase here, the, or that word amazed that's in this verse, it also appears, if you, if you didn't catch it in verse 22 earlier, it said that the people were amazed because he taught with authority. This word amazed is used twice in this passage. And in the first time, in verse 22, the word is expleso. That's Greek. And it means to strike with panic, to expel with a blow, to shock, to astonish. Now, when Jesus taught, I want, you to, I want you to understand that. If you were there, you would have felt like he punched you in the face with his words. You would have felt beaten out of the synagogue. Is that how we think of Jesus when he teaches? We like to think of Jesus as the nice Jesus. The friendly, everybody come on in, and Mr. Rogers Jesus, and put on your sweater and sit down. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. For all the high schoolers, I, I won't, just ask your parents. I can't explain what it was. Google it. That's a good one. Google it. Mr. Rogers. That's what we like. We like the nice. I, I, I got it. For, okay, so for the younger guys, it's the postmodern Jesus, right? He's the cool guy. You know, He's like going to the Apple store. They're always happy and friendly, right? <laughs> Imagine going to the Apple store and they're like, you idiot, why did you push that button? And why do what did you think? You know, and they just yelled at you out the store. Don't ever touch your computer again. You don't know what you're doing. <laughs> That's what it was like when Jesus taught just his words alone, punched them, like being punched in the face. What is he doing? Punching people in the face with his words. That's what was meant in that, by that word amazed in, in verse 22. But here, the word amazed is a different Greek word. It's thambeo. And it means to be astonished, frightened, or terrified. So when Jesus taught, it was like being shocked, like being punched right in the face. But when Jesus backed up his teaching with a, with a miracle, they were terrified. Imagine that as a first sermon for your opening you know, your, your, your first fair ride, right? The first guy that sits down to hear you talk and it, it, it's literally like they got punched in the face and now they're just scared to death of you. That was the effect that Jesus had in that synagogue in Capernaum. They did not know what to do with him. They did not know how to react to him. They were literally scared out of their minds by just listening to him and then seeing him. In action, it was like he pulled out the double barrel shotgun. Boom, boom. <laughs> I was there. Remember, I was there. I got a black eye and I'm still shaking. I mean, I was there. That's what it was like. It's so sad how bad our image of Jesus has gotten over the years. Time has obscured it and bad teaching has obscured it. It really has. It is, it is so sad to me that we're so hard to see the real Jesus. We have to dig into the scriptures. We have to understand it in order to get the real picture to come to life because it's so hard to see him because we're so swamped in such a bad view of who he really was and what he was really like. So my final point, I'll leave you with this. Read the Bible for all it's worth. Go for it. 
in your quiet time, go for it. Spend the extra few minutes. Yeah, you can Google things. It's actually kind of helpful. Yeah. Not everything. Be careful. Read a few things. If you just read one, you're going to get misled. You read a few, you might find, oh, there's a middle road here that seems to be more logical. But yeah, get online. Google a passage. Google a word. Get a commentary out. Read the passage over and over several times. You don't need to read 20 chapters. Read just a little. We read eight verses. Read eight verses over and over and really absorb the story. And guess what? You'll, you'll slowly start to see who Jesus really is. And then he becomes so much more than what you thought. He's so much more real than what you, what you started out with. And there's so much more insight in every passage of the Bible, whether it's old or new, whether it's about Jesus or not, you're going to learn something about God that you didn't know before. Right. And that's going to increase your faith. That's going to inspire you to greater faith. That's going to change your life. You know, the cabbie, when he got in the cab, he had the shock of his life. I remember when I first came to church and I sat in the first sermon I ever heard, Marty Fuquay, some of you know who he is, in the old days. And I literally felt like I was being punched in the face and kicked out of the building. Now, he didn't heal anybody miraculously. He's not Jesus. But I'll tell you what, he taught in the authority of Jesus. Not in his authority, but in the authority of Jesus. Because he taught the passage correctly. And it convicted me to the point that I left. And I said, I am not going back. And I decided, uh, I'm not going back. That church is crazy. That was what I thought, crazy. I'm going to do some, I'm gonna go somewhere else, a comfortable church. And I'm going to get my act together. Because I didn't disagree with what he said, but I was just bothered that he said it so directly. And I was in a room of a thousand people and he was talking to me. Two weeks went by and I didn't even make it to the other church. That's how in the dark I was. And I went, okay, I got to go back. I guess I'll go back because I guess I need that. And I did. I needed that. I needed to know the real Jesus. I needed to hear real teaching with real authority from the word of God, not from people. And I needed that community around me. And that's what changed my life. You know what? Maybe some of us need that kind of reawakening. Maybe some of us need to be shocked back into that kind of mindset like the cabbie was when he got tapped and he, he got shocked into panic. Maybe we need to get back to our, our, our roots when we first came out to church and we were first so astonished and amazed and terrified by everything we saw. Maybe we need to go back to that. And let God's word change us and embrace the community and we will enjoy the life that we were meant to enjoy. God bless you. Thank you very much.